So Ms. Campbell, he is obviously a, a university professor. He's a history professor at the University of Notre Dame. He did his undergraduate and some of his master's studies at Queensland, University of Queensland, and also went to University of Notre Dame for master's and doctorate. In 1980, he received his doctorate in history at the department uh, there at University of Notre Dame. Then he spent some time working for the department uh, of the, the cabinet and in addition, um, the prime minister department in Australia, but then in 1982 began his studies for being a Holy Cross priest, began his formation there. In 1988, he was ordained to the Holy Cross Fathers and served as a professor there all the way until this current day. He chaired the history department from 1993 to 1998, and his expertise is specifically in post-World War II American history, but also great Catholic figures, well, great and not so great Catholic figures in the 20th century working in the public life of the United States. So with great uh, joy, we have to welcome Father Wilson Miss Campbell. push this over a little this way so I can have my notes. Well, look, it's a great uh, pleasure uh, to be with you uh, for this Sunday supper. Not too many folks are having their supper. I'm sure the rest of you, I hope, will get the chance to have some when you get back home uh, during this Respect Life Month here at the uh, parish. I gather you've had speakers or will have speakers from branches of three great religious communities, Benedictines, right, uh, Franciscans, and Dominicans. Have I got that right? I think I saw a form or something or other. So I represent one of the more recent communities, the Congregation of Holy Cross, founded by Blessed Basil Moreau in France, in a place called Le Mans, in 1837, uh, but my order does have very deep connection to the great state of Indiana. Uh, you, uh, those familiar with Notre Dame, might know that Father Soren, uh, the founder of the university, arrived in Vincennes uh, in 1841. <laughs> he, he, he had a slight disagreement with the bishop there, uh, Soren wanted to start a school, and the bishop said, we've already got a school. Uh, he was insistent on starting a school, so the bishop said, well, we've got this bit of land up in northern Indiana. Do you want to go up there? So up he came to South Bend in 1842. But as well as some of you might know, and maybe there are some grads, the Holy Cross brothers, our great Holy Cross brothers, helped found Cathedral High School here in Indy, and served there for many decades, and the school, I think, is still uh, linked in some way to Holy Cross. Anyway, I'm grateful uh, for the opportunity to uh, speak with you as a Holy Cross religious in this uh, speaker series featuring different uh, religious communities, and I want to thank Father James and also Sally for uh, uh, all their help uh, getting me down here. So. 
So let me also thank all of you for being present here tonight. It speaks to the vigor of your parish and to your own seriousness as a Christian community that uh, you are here uh, to uh, take in whatever I, I hopefully have to, to share. Now, while I'm going through these sort of initial throat-clearing introductory remarks, let me mention a few other things. Father James is the one who asked if I would give a talk on conscience. It's not really my area of expertise. I'm a historian. I'm not a moral theologian or a philosopher, anything of that sort. But uh, I think I agreed to speak on the Catholic conscience from JFK and Vatican II to the present. Don't walk out if you were expecting something different. Stick around, it might be interesting. And uh, I will try to make some comments on that, but making use of uh, my own research for a book. Now, you know, if you're just looking for something to put you to sleep late at night, have I got something to recommend to you? So this is my biography of Father Theodore Hesburgh. I called it American Priest, very important title there, The Ambitious Life and Conflicted Legacy of Notre Dame's Father Ted Hesburgh. And I see him in many ways as a representative figure, an emblematic figure for the journey of Catholics in the United States. So I'll be trying to weave in conscience and my Hesburgh story, to sort of bring them together. Uh, as I say, I hope uh, this will be of interest. And do we have, do we have questions and so on afterwards? Maybe pro, uh, provoke a question uh, and some discussion. Anyway, uh, I cannot, as I say, claim that I am a moral theologian, but I want to suggest the value of history Sometimes getting the story straight about the road we have traveled helps us discern better how to navigate the present and the future. So I hope that may be the case uh, tonight. Now, one thing I think we can say for sure is that conscience and the rights of conscience for Catholics is certainly in the news right now because of the debate on various matters relating to the whole pandemic, in particular the debate over vaccination and the increasing mandates to uh, receive them or else, that kind of thing. Uh, a uh, sort of implied that if you don't get vaccinated, there'll be a significant uh, price uh, to be meted out, uh, even, I'm led to believe, job termination or banishment from various means of travel or whatever. I'm not sure all those 80,000 people who've been in the Notre Dame football stadium have been vaccinated or not, but uh, they've certainly been having a pretty decent time of it, except in that darn game against Cincinnati, but, well, we'll put that aside. Anyway... Uh, in the church, the response has generally been to 
encourage uh, some variation of the vaccines. Uh, I'm vaccinated and all the rest. But also to reaffirm that vaccination cannot be mandated. And I want to just point to two quick cases where you hear conscience language coming up. The first is from the bishops of Colorado. The bishops of Colorado, they wrote jointly to, quote, affirm that the use of some COVID-19 vaccines is morally acceptable under certain circumstances. But then they went on. We understand that some individuals have well-founded convictions that lead them to discern they should not get vaccinated. We are pleased to see that in the case of the most recent Denver vaccine mandate, there is accommodation for sincerely held religious beliefs. This is appropriate under the laws protecting freedom of religion. We always remain vigilant when any bureaucracy seeks to impose uniform and sweeping requirements on a group of people in areas of personal conscience. Well, obviously, conscience. What about this from Archbishop uh, uh, Timothy Broglio, who's the Archbishop for the military services? Catholic U.S. troops should be allowed to refuse the COVID-19 vaccine based solely on conscientious objection and regardless of whether abortion-related tissue was used in its creation or testing, the Archbishop for the Military declared in a new statement supporting service members who are seeking religious exemptions. This is quoting him. No one should be forced to receive a COVID-19 vaccine if it would violate the sanctity of his or her conscience, said Archbishop Broglio. Well, I mention that just hopefully to get your attention. Conscience is in the news. What does it mean? How do we get a well-developed conscience? Let me switch gears and ask you to give a little thought to that yourself. What do you think of when someone says to you, follow your conscience, follow your conscience? Let me suggest that in our time, contemporary times, many have come to understand the notion of conscience in a very individualistic way. When faced with a moral dilemma, somehow or other, our conscience, like a sort of voice communicating to either our head or our heart, guides us to make a decision to take the correct action or at least the action we think to be correct. It is a very personal choice that we must make, so goes the contemporary view. 
please keep that view of conscience and the counsel to follow your conscience before you. I'll come back to it. I'll return to it. So now I want to take you on a rather rapid journey of sorts, somewhat in the company of Father Theodore Hesburgh, longtime president of Notre Dame. Father Ted, as I called him, often considered uh, one of the most influential priests, certainly of the second half of the 20th century. He played important roles in higher education, Catholic Church, national, international affairs, etc. So he's a pretty interesting character to journey beside. And perhaps in his company, we can gain some insight into matters of conscience as it concerns Catholics over the past six decades or so. Indeed, I hope that through some reflection on Father Hesburgh's experience to shed at least some light on some aspects of conscience. Now, uh, I know we have some folks here of more mature years in our audience tonight, and uh, I'm in that category myself, so uh, you may have some recollections of 1960. The matter of conscience was much on the mind of American Catholics in that year. Father Hesburgh was the young, dynamic president of Notre Dame, and he watched developments on a number of fronts. In particular, Hesburgh watched a brilliant Jesuit, yes, a brilliant Jesuit theologian, who worked to demonstrate the compatibility of the Catholic conscience, sort of as a collective, with the American political system. At the very same time, Hesburgh is watching as an eloquent young Catholic senator from Massachusetts tried to reassure Protestant voters that his conscience would allow him to serve effectively as president of the country, JFK, of course. So Hesburgh found himself in full accord with the efforts of the great Jesuit theologian John Courtney Murray. And Murray's great project was to demonstrate the compatibility of what Murray broadly termed the Catholic conscience, the way of thinking as a Catholic, with the American proposition or American system of government. In his great book, We Hold These Truths, Catholic Reflections on the American Proposition, it was published in 1960, Murray argued that the United States, which, you know, let's face it, seemingly a Protestant nation from the outset, was in fact founded on principles inherited from Catholic political theory. These political principles, from Murray's view, emerged from natural law and were undergirded by such ideas as government has a moral basis that the universal moral law is the foundation of a society and that the legal order of society, that is the state, is subject to judgment by a law inherent in this natural law and that the eternal reason of God is the ultimate origin of the law. Murray says, yeah, all these ideas undergird the American system, 
Anyway, so he, you know, gives a lot of detail and argument and so on for all of this. Anyway, his bottom line was that this collective Catholic conscience could be at peace with the United States. Those of you who are older may remember there was always that concern. Could Catholics really be fully loyal to the US? Protestants would raise this up. Could Catholics really belong? And Murray says, yes, because the essential structure of the United States is in fact founded on these principles. So Murray's wonderful book did not necessarily receive universal approval or reading. The issue continued to be one. And Protestants would say, Catholics want a confessional state. Catholics want a system in which the church is going to dominate and tell everybody what to do, that there's not going to be a separate sphere for church and state. And of course, this charge was raised against the young Catholic senator seeking the Democratic nomination for the presidency, John F. Kennedy. And Kennedy, who obviously wants to win the election, of course, seeks to placate this Protestant concern. And to do so, he has a famous meeting with the Greater Houston Ministerial Association, a group of Protestant, primarily Baptist, ministers in September 1960. So, you know, it's right in the latest day. He's got the nomination. He's, he's trying to defeat Richard Nixon in that election. Has anyone, I thought to myself, I'll do a survey. Has anyone here ever uh, read or looked at JFK's speech to the Houston ministers? Embarrass yourself by putting up your hand. No, there won't be a quiz. There won't be a quiz. Look, go home tonight. Get on YouTube. Put in Kennedy's speech to the Houston Baptist ministers, September 1960. It's an incredible speech. I don't agree with a lot of it. But as, as a speech, it is so brilliant and effective. You know, he, he has lines like, you guys are concerned about my being a Catholic? No one ever had concerns when I'm on PT 109 fighting out there in the Pacific. No one ever had concerns for my brother Joe when his plane is shot down over there in Europe. You know, it's, 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 it's amazing stuff. You'll do yourself a favor if you watch it. Anyway, we, we can't get detained there. Sorry, that's a bit of a problem of mine. I've got a couple of former students of mine. They can tell you my capacity to uh, go off on tangents, but I'm very disciplined here tonight. It's like my homilies. They have a beginning, a middle, and thank goodness, an end. Back on track, Kennedy comes before these Protestant ministers. They're looking at him with suspicion. You get a bit of a glimpse of it if you watch this black and white film. And these leaders question whether Kennedy's Roman Catholic faith would allow him to make important national decisions as president independent of the church. And Kennedy outlined his views and his commitments to a radical, absolute separation of church and state. And then he assured his audience that he would make his decisions on any issue that came before him, quote, 
in accordance with my conscience, with what my conscience tells me to be the national interest, and without regard to outside religious pressures or dictates. So, of course, he's trying to win an election and to negate the concerns of Protestant voters, but what he offered here is a view that essentially privatized his religious faith. In effect, he promised to relegate his faith to a purely private status, and he implied that his conscience was somehow or other distinct from his religious commitments. I hope that's moderately clear. Well, I don't want to reflect at any length on JFK's attitudes. Folks like Father Hesburgh and John Courtney Murray were a little concerned at the extent of separation Kennedy outlined. But of course, both priests cut the Democratic candidates some slack in that they recognized the political needs of the moment. hope that's not JFK. <laughs> the issues with conscience revealed in the 60 election clarify for us, however, that the matter needed further explication. Folks were like, does John Courtney's Murray's analysis represent the official church teaching? Was John Kennedy's uh, resort to personal conscience as the ultimate arbiter of his actions, the appropriate course for all Catholics in both public and personal life. These were sort of floating around as issues. So then along comes Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council. Father Hesburg reveled in the teachings of Vatican II and he had a high regard for the document of which John Courtney Murray was one of the key authors. Murray was invited over as a peritus or expert, namely Dignitatis Humanae, the Declaration on Religious Freedom that was adopted by the council in 1965. And in this document, the council fathers, all those bishops gathered there in Rome, indicated forcefully their support for freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. Indeed, it stated clearly that religious liberty was to be respected by civil authorities and no individual was to be coerced in matters of religion. So folks said, ah, Vatican II's adopting the American way, John Courtney Murray's definition of the American proposition. The nail was put into the metaphorical coffin of the old confessional state, you know, like Franco's Spain or something like that. Murray had succeeded in his great project to have the church adopt an approach that was fully compatible with and indeed borrowed from his beloved American proposition. Hesburgh admired this, etc. So no longer could there be any grounds or uh, fears that a Catholic authority 
might inflict or enforce religion on any person. Dignitatis Humanae made clear, quote, in all his activity, a man, they were uh, writing in that way in those days, man or woman, is bound to follow his conscience faithfully in order that he may come to God for whom he was created. It follows that he is not to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his conscience, nor, on the other hand, is, to, is he to be restrained from acting in accordance with his conscience, especially in matters religious. So Vatican II gives this emphasis on freedom of conscience. Hesburgh also greatly appreciated the teaching of Vatican II in its great document, Gaudium et Spes, the constitution of the church in the modern world. These documents, you know, they're not the most exciting reading in the world, but if ever you're looking to deepen your own sense of church teaching and so on, I commend those to you. Anyway, perhaps uh, you've, I, I shouldn't be assuming, many of you undoubtedly have read Gaudium et Spes, but let me remind you of what it says in paragraph 16. There, the council fathers describe conscience as a voice echoing out of the depths of a person. I'll quote the passage in full. Please don't fall asleep. In the depths of his conscience, man detects a law which he does not impose upon himself, but which holds him in obedience, always summoning him to love good and avoid evil. Ah, conscience is going to summon us, summon us to love good and avoid evil. The voice of conscience, when necessary, speaks to his heart. Do this, shun that. For man has in his heart a law written by God. To obey it is his very dignity. According to it, he will be judged. Conscience is the most secret core and sanctuary of a man. There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. Whew. Man is alone with God. It seems like you just have to listen to that voice. That's what the passage seems to say, right? Dare I say, this is how many folks interpreted it. Now, the Council Fathers were certainly not engaged in the business of dismissing formal church teaching or the need for sound ethical reflection. They explicitly stated that men and women should act in accord with God's law. A properly formed conscience would lead men and women to obedience to God's law. But, some of you may have experienced the 60s in various ways, in the midst of the tumultuous 1960s, conscience was interpreted as acting on one's own intuition or feeling. People were into feelings feelings gained a significant hold. 
It was, of course, a period in which authority of all sorts was being challenged. And the counsel to follow your conscience came to be adopted, as one Dominican theologian has put it, as a code for pursuing personal preferences over and against the teachings of Christ and the church on a whole variety of issues, but especially in the areas of sexuality. Jump ahead just a few years to 1968. During that year, Father Hesburgh was shocked when his good friend, Pope Paul VI, issued Humane Vitae on human life. I noticed your wonderful banners for Respect Life. Uh, and in this extremely controversial document, Paul VI affirmed the Catholic Church's traditional view of marriage and marital relations and its continued prohibition against the use of artificial birth control. The encyclical revealed that Paul VI would not simply acquiesce in the sexual revolution that was gathering such steam. He refused to endorse the deliberate separation of the sexual act between a man and a woman from the possibility of procreation. We might say in passing that Pope Paul acted on his conscience after thought and prayer knowing full well that there would be a furor and criticism uh, as a result of his encyclical. Now, uh, I won't uh, cover too much of what uh, Father Ted reacted, but Father Ted was shocked because he was pretty sure that, Fa that Pope Paul VI would endorse artificial birth control. Folks caught up in the spirit, so-called spirit, of Vatican II felt that way. And so, as some of you would know, the issuing of Humane Vitae caused a, a big uh, stir. Now, what, you ask, has any of that to do with conscience? Well, while folks like Father Hesburgh avoided outright public criticism, of Humane Vitae, he felt no obligation to promote the teaching. He was more influenced by uh, liberal theologians who were upset by the encyclical, and they engaged in what I call a quiet dissent, a quiet dissent. They simply told Catholic couples, follow your conscience on this matter. Of course, Father Hesburgh did not advocate that this approach should be applied more generally to Catholic teaching, but of course, once this more autonomous attitude was applied in this instance, it was more difficult to argue that deciding for oneself should be the norm for Catholics over a whole range of moral issues. Well, I just leave that there for your reflection. Now, of course, the Council Fathers at Vatican II 
had always qualified their important statements on conscience by the insistence of one's need to develop a well-formed and well-informed conscience. The need for familiarity with church teaching and for sustained discernment on forming one's conscience was always stated. But as the present Archbishop of Sydney, Anthony Fisher, uh, Archbishop Fisher has said this, many took up the council's views on the dignity and liberty of conscience with greater enthusiasm than they did its teaching on the need to inform conscience and the moral absolutes known to a rightly reasoning conscience as proclaimed by the magisterium. People began to get into this framework of, I do what feels best for me. It became the norm to hear of the supposed primacy of conscience and people referenced back to the great 19th century British convert, John Henry Newman, recently canonized. By the way, I was deeply confused. Back last Saturday, no, Saturday, October the 9th, I'd been participating, this has nothing to do with anything, but I want to share it with you. Maybe some of you have some influence. I was participating in a Zoom discussion on Friday night on the work of my dear friend Don Briel, who died a couple of years back, who was a great Newman devotee. Anyway, I hear some lady say, and isn't it wonderful, we're celebrating Newman's feast day tomorrow. And I was up to say mass at Moreau Seminary, where I live, and uh, I'd looked at the readings, and I'd looked at the Ordo, and the feasts were Saint Denis, the patron of Paris, a Parisian French martyr back in the 200s, and some other good saint, whom my senior moment, I'm not remembering at the, no Cardinal Newman. So I think to myself, I have caught Father Peter Rocker out in a mistake. He hasn't got Newman in the ordo. So I go downstairs. Peter never makes a mistake, by the way. And uh, I say, Peter, I, I think it's St. John Henry Newman's feast day. Peter goes, not on the American liturgical calendar. Folks, don't you think old John Henry Newman deserves a place on the American? Get in touch with, you know, your bishop, and if any of you know the archbishop, tell him to get him on there for October 9th. Interestingly, it's not the day of his death. It's the day he converted from Anglicanism to Catholicism, and in the process, lost his fine position at Oxford and his many friends, he was fated by everybody. There can be costs in being a Catholic disciple. Anyway, um, pick up John Henry Newman if ever you're interested. Newman, of course, had given a famous toast. It goes somewhat like this. 
If I am obliged to bring religion into an after-dinner toast, I shall drink to the Pope, still to conscience first and to the Pope afterwards. Well, everyone goes, ah, Newman, holy man, brilliant guy, conscience first, Pope afterwards. But of course, they never go beyond quoting that sentence. Newman's replying to the very Protestant British Prime Minister, William Gladstone, and Gladstone was saying, ah, Catholics are not trustworthy subjects of the state because, you know, they uh, genuflect towards the Pope or something. And uh, so Newman was trying to clarify, but he went further and he said, listen, obedience to conscience inevitably leads to obedience to the gospel. A rightly informed conscience is going to lead you to God's call. Keep that in mind. I just don't want folks bringing up the fact that I haven't mentioned John Henry Newman, his uh, remarkable person. I, I once visited his, uh, the Birmingham Oratory and uh, yeah, I, I had a profound spiritual experience. He had a standing desk before standing desks were fashionable. And uh, the old oratorian who was showing me around said to me, would you like to stand at his desk? And so with some trepidation, I came forward and I, I put my, my bony hands on that desk. And uh, I'm telling you, I, I sensed enormous holiness and enormous learning somehow or other. I wish more of it had rubbed off, but uh, I'm telling you, I sensed it at that time. So it's a great joy that he has been uh, canonized. Anyway, Father Hesburg, of course, is making his way through the 1970s and uh, 1980s, and he, by and large, goes along with this, ah, oh, well, you know, follow your conscience, do what makes you feel good. But the use of conscience to justify dissent in the church troubled another very able philosopher priest, a bishop who had participated at Vatican II, a person who had helped author Gaudium et Spes, you know whom I'm referring to, this Polish cardinal, Karol Wojtyla, who came to be known as John Paul II after his election as Pope in 1978. And John Paul II came to worry deeply about the way that the term primacy of conscience had come to be understood as simply a way of acting upon one's personal preference. And in his great encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, issued in 1993, he outlined the problem. Forgive me for this lengthy quote, but I must quote it. The individual conscience is accorded the status of a supreme tribunal of moral judgment 
which hands down categorical and infallible decisions about good and evil, to the affirmation that one has a duty to follow one's conscience is unduly added the affirmation that one's moral judgment is true merely by the fact that it has its origins in the conscience. But in this way, the inescapable claims of truth disappear, yielding their place to a criterion of authenticity and being at peace with oneself, so much so that some have come to adopt a radically subjectivist conception of moral judgment. So JP2 says, folks have got this sort of relativist view, okay, it feels pretty good, this, this must be what I'm supposed to do. And they separate that off from truth, from the truth. As John Paul noted, this conception of conscience was in reality a cover for moral relativism and a means to circumvent, get around moral truths. And he proceeded in this great encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, to address this matter. Now, I've kept you poor folks here long enough. I was going to go on and say a bit about uh, the visit of Mario Cuomo to Notre Dame in 1984, but I think I'll skip over that and just say, Shall we have a show of hands? My students, oh, look, it's overwhelming. Bar the doors, don't let anybody out. <laughs> so I want to draw attention because this, this, this connects to matters of Catholics and public life in our present time, doesn't it? So, 1984, during that election year, Father Richard McBrien, who was the chair of theology at Notre Dame, extended an invitation to the then New York governor, Mario Cuomo. By the way, I'm a much bigger fan of Mario than I am of his son. Uh, so Mario Cuomo to visit the Notre Dame campus to defend what we might describe as a kind of pro-choice position on abortion. And this invitation was made after Cuomo had clashed with Archbishop O'Connor, John J. O'Connor, who was then the Archbishop of New York, over the responsibilities of Catholic politicians on this crucial issue. McBrien enthusiastically provided Cuomo with a Catholic platform, the stage of Washington Hall at Notre Dame, to broadcast his disagreement with O'Connor. Now, as some of the more mature members of the audience might recall, the New York governor announced that while he accepted the teaching of the church and its doctrine on abortion, this did not lead him to support any actions that might limit abortion in any way. Cuomo instead appealed to what he termed Catholic realism, and he argued that any ban on abortion would be divisive and would not work. 
Thus, he stated as his fundamental principle, the values derived from religious belief will not and should not be accepted as part of the public morality unless they are shared by the pluralistic community at large by consensus. Got to have a broad consensus before you can agree on anything. Now, of course, thoughtful commentators relentlessly dismantle Cuomo's so-called Catholic realism principle, asking if it should have been applied on other great moral questions, such as racial discrimination. They said, no, there are some things that are wrong. You can say, this is right, this is wrong. Father Hesburgh himself recognized the limits of Cuomo's case. He said, at least Cuomo should have an obligation to try and build that consensus. But Father Ted didn't do a lot to publicly challenge Cuomo. Uh, he did point out that if Cuomo had insisted that abortion was morally wrong and evil, which first needed to be contained, and then placed in the course of ultimate extinction, as his hero, Cuomo's hero, Abraham Lincoln, had said of slavery in 1858, perhaps his position might have been more defensible. Instead, Cuomo insisted on campaigning for public funding for abortion to make it more readily available, and he defended one of the most permissive abortion regimes in any democratic nation. It's so sad that this amazing nation has such a abortion regimen operating as a result, not of the people's decision, but of Roe versus Wade. Anyway, privatized religion was the order of the day by the 1980s. Mario Cuomo can say, I'm not going to interfere in any way in anybody else's choice regardless of him claiming that he took Catholic teaching seriously, that there was another human being involved in an abortion aside from the mother. This triumph was facilitated by the refusal of respected Catholic figures to challenge Catholic civil leaders, for their stance. Well, the position of uh, everyone defines their own morality, etc., was encapsulated into law by the Catholic justice, Anthony Kennedy, in the famous Casey decision in the early 1990s individualism becomes incorporated into the very law of the United States. I, I want to read this sentence. Anthony Kennedy wrote, each person has the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That relativistic view has largely triumphed, I regret to say, in this country and indeed 
throughout the Western world. Let me jump up very quickly to a final little episode that occurred in 2010. The Congress was engaged in a major debate over the Obama health care legislation. The then Congressman Joe Donnelly, a graduate of both Notre Dame undergrad and Notre Dame Law School, and the representative of the House District in which Notre Dame is located, subsequently, of course, Senator from Indiana, and recently announced as U.S. Ambassador, uh, President Biden's nominee to be U.S. Ambassador to the Vatican. So Joe Donnelly was the member of a small, pro-life Democratic faction in the House of Representatives led by Michigan Congressman Bart Stupak. And they had withheld their support from the bill because of their objection to the legislation's inclusion of federal subsidies for abortion in health care provisions. The U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops had opposed the legislation. National Right to Life had warned explicitly that a lawmaker who votes for this bill is voting to require federal agencies to subsidize and administer health plans that will pay for elective abortions and voting to undermine long-standing pro-life policies in other ways as well. So, in these circumstances, the then House Speaker, and still House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, called the now elderly Father Hesburgh and asked him to speak to Representative Donnelly on the matter. She says to Father Ted, can you, you know, get him to sort of reconsider? Hesburgh took up her request, and his intervention apparently swayed Joe Donnelly who succumbed to the intense pressure of the majority of his Democratic colleagues and eventually voted in favor of what became Obamacare with its provisions to mandate birth control and abortifacient coverage in healthcare plans. Father Hesburgh defended his position by clarifying that he simply told Donnelly to wait for it, vote his conscience. However, the fact that the priest didn't strengthen Donnelly in his pro-life convictions or to remind him of church teaching as a guide for his conscience disappointed many. One might have expected that Father Hesburg would have encouraged Donnelly in his efforts to hold out for genuine concessions from the Obama administration, but he did not. The instruction to vote your conscience in reality seemed to imply that it was acceptable to go along with Nancy Pelosi's recommended course. Now, Father Ted and Joe Donnelly are both decent men. They had no idea at that stage that approving that legislation would create conscience problems for other Catholics. But that is indeed what occurred 
Uh, of course, as the Department of Health and Human Service mandates for Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, uh, came out, uh, problems were developed for the little sisters of the poor and other courageous folks who resisted those mandates. Well, friends, what are we to make of all this? I'm sure you're asking that question yourself. How should conscience operate for us, both in our private lives and in our public lives? I want to offer to you the counsel of St. John Paul II as a guide for you. In that encyclical I mentioned earlier, Very Tata Splendor, The Splendor of the Truth, John Paul explained carefully that a well-formed Christian conscience would be informed by authoritative church teaching. It's not a matter of just going with your gut feeling or some quick sense of revelation from the outside. Rather, one must submit one's experiences, insights, and wishes to the judgment of the gospel and be prepared to accord one's actions to the mind of Christ authentically transmitted by the church. John Paul II was concerned to emphasize the truth. Perhaps you might say truth with a capital T. For him, conscience derived its dignity and authority from the truth about moral good and evil. For him, freedom of conscience was not freedom from the truth, but always freedom for the truth. As the Sydney Archbishop Anthony Fisher has a great bioethics book and a terrific chapter on conscience in it, if you're interested. Anyway, Anthony Fisher has explained church teaching serves the Christian conscience by highlighting and clarifying those truths that a well-formed conscience ought to possess. Well, I could make reference to St. Thomas More and all the rest, but remember, More's conscience, for which he gave his life, was shaped by his deep conviction regarding his membership in the church and his commitment to her teaching. Staying true to his conscience led finally to his trial and execution. Remember he said, the king's faithful servant, but God's first. Dare I suggest to you that truly following one's conscience is not likely to be an easy or necessarily popular course today. I hope my talk has conveyed to you that it is much more than doing what we think pleases us. Instead, for a faithful Catholic, it is acting upon what we know to be right in light of Christ's teachings and the teachings of his church. If you act upon these teachings, as Thomas More was willing to do, you are likely to be regarded 
as holding outdated opinions and with refusing to go along with what the world holds forth as the proper course, what the cool kids are doing. No, you won't be in that group. Indeed, looking at the present and the future, we might raise some questions about John Courtney Murray's conclusion that the Catholic conscience was broadly compatible with the American proposition. Murray assumed that natural law and a clear recognition that the nation was, quote, under God, provided bedrock elements of the American system. But such principles seem problematic in our postmodern and increasingly post-Christian polity, seeing the remarkable plant here at Our Lady of Mount Carmel, I'm sure you don't think you're in a post-Christian society, but believe me, you don't have to navigate too far beyond these environs to get a sense of it. In our time, Catholic institutions and individuals are likely to face, and indeed are already facing, pressures to violate their conscience from powerful forces in an aggressive secular society. This is especially the case at this stage in the vast area of healthcare, where hospitals and clinics and doctors, nurses, medical technicians who work in them are being pressured to participate in such activities as abortion, assisted suicide, that should deeply offend a well-formed Catholic conscience. Today, the issue seems less Will Catholics in some way be a threat to the American state, as the Baptist ministers in Houston feared back in 1960 when JFK was running? Rather, it is this. Will the state permit Catholics to exercise their conscience on fundamental moral questions? One can only hope that measures to assure conscience protection for various healthcare professionals, some of you undoubtedly in that area, in our uh, hall here tonight, that these will win approval, but I say that seems unlikely. Issues of religious liberty and conscience protection seem likely to be contested ground well into the future. It may be that the American system, as it operates in this coming decade, will prove far less compatible with the informed Catholic conscience than John Courtney Murray could ever have imagined. In this situation, the temptation, dear friends, will be strong to acquiesce and to go along with the demands of the dominant voices in the culture. This sadly is the choice of far too many politicians who sort of tick the Catholic box. Like JFK and Mario Cuomo before them, their religion is privatized and a well-formed Catholic conscience makes little claim on their public actions. Adding to the challenging situation, we must note, of course, that the credibility of the Catholic Church has been so damaged by the sex abuse crisis and the malfeasance of a number of prominent church leaders. 
the standing of the church is sadly diminished. And yet, perhaps you good folk on this Sunday evening, giving up your Sunday to be here, might take a different and more challenging course than merely going along. Please educate your consciences. I, uh, I brought along a book. I'm not associated with it in any way. This isn't special pleading, but I want to recommend this book to you. It's called From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, Pastoral Strategies for an Apostolic Age. And the authors of this book, it comes out of the University of Mary, convey to us that the old age of Christendom, when our institutions had a lot of regard and so on, is passing. We're in an apostolic age where we're going to have to evangelize and stand for our faith. Please be part of the needed effort of the church to recover a true Catholic sense of conscience, one that is shaped in light of the truths of the gospel and the church's authoritative moral teaching. We can be sure that the voice of conscience, which is God speaking to us, still speaks. The question is whether we have the wisdom to discern it and the courage to act upon it. So I do want to finish by saying, follow your conscience, but let it be a well-formed one that leads you to live in the truth and to do the right, and especially when it is hard. Hold true to your Catholic conscience. In the end, it will be your reliable guide. And in the process, you might serve as an example for others whose consciences have been kind of numbed or sidelined you may aid them to navigate through the troubling realities of our day and to know better the truth, the truth of Christ. Uh, as some of you know, I've been at Notre Dame a long time, and uh, my efforts there, uh, perhaps uh, uh, not terribly successful, for wanting us to provide for our students who go through there good formation as they come into adulthood in their Catholic faith, good formation of their consciences. But this applies at every level of education. Elementary, I see you have a wonderful school. Well, this, this building is part of the school, right? So wonderful school here and high school and college. Catholic education should be about helping those who experience it and participate in it, shaping their conscience so that they navigate their way in the world as well-informed Catholics. I hope that my little talk here tonight has been of some benefit to you in that regard. Thank you so much.
I, I know. Uh, on, on behalf of the Gospel of Life Committee here at uh, Our Lady, we want to thank Father Bill for his participation in this speaker series. And to bring this exercise to fulfillment, we'd like to take the next five minutes uh, for you all to uh, go through an examination of conscience, and then Father Bill will hear all of your confessions. <laughs> This is, this is starting me to uh, make uh, that, uh, that wish that we go back to the general absolution. Uh. <laughs> yeah, this, this was news to Father Bill. He wasn't aware of this plan. Now, uh, do we have any questions? There's a man here. There's a lady at the back. Oh. Thank you, it's a wonderful talk. I don't have a question. I want to tell you and everybody here that you cleared up for me um, a difficulty I've had for a number of years. And that difficulty is the result of a conversation that I had with our retired bishop, Bishop Higgy. And at the time, Donnelly was our US senator. Yeah. And I said to the bishop, how is it that the church can continue to administer the sacraments to public officials who openly support abortion. And the bishop's answer to me confused me at the time, but you helped me understand it. And what the bishop said to me was that we don't know how his conscience was formed. And, and, and at the time, it stunned me. I, I, I couldn't imagine a, a comment like that. But what you've said tonight, introducing this issue of relativism, which is what we're dealing with so much, yeah. helps me to understand why he would have said that. I don't say this in any way to indict the bishop. That's not my intention. But it helps me to understand how good, honest Catholics can have that idea that someone like Joe Donnelly is entitled to come to the sacraments even though he publicly supports abortion. I don't agree with it, but at least now I understand the origin of it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's a very interesting comment. Of course, this is a very current issue, and uh, the Bishop of Fort Wayne, South Bend, Kevin Rhodes, is uh, the chair of the Bishop's Doctrine Committee that is supposedly going to prepare this document on Eucharistic coherence. Now, it's to do with a lot more than just uh, communion to uh, Catholic politicians who are out and out supporters of abortion. Uh, Joe Donnelly was a lot better than many of them, like uh, Speaker Pelosi is just over the top. But, but, uh, but the difficulty is there's division among the bishops, and some say, and they're getting some support from Pope Francis on this, you can't weaponize the Eucharist, you can't punish people by declining the Eucharist, uh, and, you know, Eucharist is food for the journey. It's to help us live a Christ-like life, etc. Now, mind you, none of them said that. None of them said that in the early 1960s when the Archbishop of New Orleans excommunicated a number of Catholic politicians in Louisiana who were refusing to desegregate schools. Archbishop Rommel went ahead. And there was uh, Leander Perez was one of them. So 
it's, uh, there's, there's confusion. Let's uh, pray that the bishops can, uh, can get some coherence to their own thinking. But uh, sorry. This yeah, be, uh, uh, Father Bill, we had a request for the name of the author of the last book you held up. Yes, well, let, oh, sorry. This is very interesting because there's no specific author. It was a group project out of the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. Yeah, I visited there once. Interesting little place. Uh, the, not, not Bismarck. I mean, the University of Bismarck is probably interesting as well, but I was at the University of Mary. The title, if you get this down, from Christendom, you know, Christendom's the old Catholic institutions. We're riding high. It's the 50s. There's expansion. We're building churches. Christendom to apostolic mission. We're like those early disciples. We're going to have to go out there and spread the news of God coming into our world as Jesus Christ to redeem us and save us, etc., etc. That's the challenge that lies ahead for us as Catholics. So it's, uh, it's available on Amazon. I've been handing it out to anyone who I think might read it all the way through. It's a smaller group than those who would take the book from me just for the fun of it. From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, Pastoral Strategies for an Apostolic Age, University of Mary. Yeah, you'll believe me, you'll thank me for recommending this book. It helps explain a lot. Yeah. Father Bill, my name is Denise. Um, yes, Denise. Hi, thanks for being here. Um, I almost didn't come because I came to find out you were from Notre Dame. And the way Notre Dame has behaved, I am one of those 70s person living, in, I mean, I am 70 years old, so I followed that. Yeah. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I, don't, I just don't want to hear him defend it. I just don't want to hear it. And then I thought, I literally, I prayed at 5.30 Mass today, and I said, you know, Lord, just send me out there, just give me an open mind, you know, go run through Burger King, get a burger, and, and go in and sit in the back. And I just want to tell you, you brought me to tears. And I thank you so very much for speaking out loud the truth in a world that is so upside down. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So, <laughs> I'll, uh, if you invite me back next year, I'd like to come back and speak about Catholic higher education. My friend, Dr. Steve O'Neill over there, uh, we've had some good discussions on this. And here is the thing, you know, uh, Notre Dame, it's a complex place. Uh, it's a place where there's a struggle, a struggle taking place for its heart and soul, you see? And uh, honestly, sometimes some of the things that go on, you just shake your head and go, oh my God, no wonder we haven't won a national championship since 1988. <laughs> Our Lady is in tears. Seriously, there are some things that you just shake your head. But what I ask you folks to appreciate is that there are so many good faculty. I wish there were more, but there are so many good faculty and students who are doing good work. And uh, for students who are contemplating colleges, I try and say, we want students who want to get a good Catholic education 
to come to Notre Dame because they sort of can ask the school to live up to what it promises that it's going to supply. Uh, but I'm ready to concede. It's some days you feel good and some days you don't feel so good about the place. I, I love it every day, but, but that's just the way it is. Yeah. I'll get all emotional here. Oh, and, oh, and, and, and I will, have a Notre Dame professor. And I, and I will tell you, Father Bill was not invited here because he's from Notre Dame. No. He was invited here because he had been heard before by a member of our committee, and he speaks to the truth. Yeah, thank you. And that's why he's here. <laughs> Father Bill, as a historian, I was wondering if you could comment on the trajectory of something for us. Um, the whole notion of trust your conscience, uh, et cetera, the primacy of individual will yeah. suggests, you know, moral relativism, suggests kind of a laissez-faire approach. And yet, what we've seen over the past few years, you know, maybe beginning before Obamacare, but certainly after that, um, we've seen it moving away from do what you like to compulsion. Yeah, yeah. We're going to make just, you participate. There's great irony, yeah. And so, you know, we, we have these nominally Catholic politicians, Kathleen Sebelius, who was the head of Health and Human Services under President Obama. Yeah. Now we have Javier Becerra, who was instrumental in the efforts in California to force pro-life pregnancy centers to advertise for abortion. Yeah. So I would like to know, how did it go from being do whatever you like to do what we tell you to? Yeah, I wish I could explain that better for you, Laura, but uh, the uh, ability of certain folks, uh, they are part of a sort of cultural elite for whom Catholic teaching is sort of their last barrier. They've pretty much wiped over, uh, maybe some evangelical Protestants are a bit of a barrier for them as well, but they've rolled over mainline Protestantism. They've just become a sort of a chorus of agreement. And they want to push a particular view strongly and down people's throats. Now, ironically, this is where I see the irony, when it suits their purposes, they are all for freedom of conscience as they define it. But their freedom of conscience is their personal collective preference. It's the Anthony Kennedy line, we define, we define who we are, what we do, etc. You see it with the, the growing sort of transgender uh, movement. So I wish I could explain it better, how the uh, group that sometimes is always saying, oh, tolerance, let tolerate whatever weird behavior may go on in the society. When they get into power, they want to tightly control and ram down people's throats. So the Obama administration wouldn't give the little sisters of the poor an indult to get out of how they would pay their health insurance, etc. No. It has to be forced down, and I see it as their desire to impose all the values that came out of that sort of whole sexual revolution, etc., on, for the most part, good and unsuspecting folks who hopefully are waking up and will push back against them. But 
you probably have as good, I know you follow things so closely, you probably have as good an explanation. I wish I could understand what goes on in the mind of someone like Javier Becerra and uh, the desire to uh, have uh, women's uh, care clinics that are providing pro-life assistance to women that they say to them, you have to distribute information about abortion. I mean, it's, it's positively Orwellian. We've reached 1984, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, on that uplifting note, on that uplifting note, There's, there's much truth there. I don't know. Has anyone got a drink? No, just kidding. <laughs> I just wondered with um, everybody so hungry for the truth and for courageous priests to speak out, and there's so many that are speaking out and are being silenced. I just wondered how you felt about those priests that seem to be shut down if they speak, speak out on the truth. Um, I just want to get into that or not. Oh, I wasn't speaking about water. <laughs> but it is still a great drink. That's all I have, Father Bill, sorry. Yeah. I don't want to avoid the question. Um, I know there have been instances where priests have been silenced, etc. Uh, and the uh, challenge, I guess, is to be able to speak in such a way that you can communicate with the broad range of your uh, parishioners, uh, stay in contact with them, and to speak the truth. But the, the difficulty is, as this uh, very articulate gentleman has said, we, we get caught into a mode of just accepting, you know, kind of comfortable Christianity and just going along. So I think any priest who wants to speak up, I've, I've, uh, I've had an, an easy run in my life. Obviously, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not invited to all the big dinner parties at uh, Notre Dame or anything of that sort, as Professor Hollis knows. But, uh, you know, I, uh, you don't become a priest to uh, advance that way. So maybe it's a price that folks have to pay for trying to speak the truth. And of course, uh, have any of you been watching The Chosen? Is it a big, yeah. You know that uh, it takes a while for disciples to get the message and to get, the, get it together and so on of what the Lord is conveying. And then uh, hopefully 
disciples go forth and speak courageously. So I don't know if the, I, I don't know enough about particular cases that you might be mentioning, but my counsel to the young, I live at our seminary, uh, Moreau Seminary, and uh, I try and counsel our young guys, have some backbone, you know, just don't go out, uh, but it's, uh, it's a challenge uh, for them because they want to be liked by the parishioners and they want to be liked by their superiors and so on. Hey, uh, I'm not addressing your question terribly well, I apologize, but I hope that touches on it a little. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we take a little comfort from uh, even hearing from today about James and John being a little confused about how you go about asking Jesus for what you want, but maybe that's just me. Any other questions? Yeah. Well, Anyone listen, else? thank you all. Oh. Thank you. Father Bill, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you. Great to be with you. Ladies and gentlemen, um, if you're unfamiliar, if you are unfamiliar with a Catholic event, there are two things I'm going to ask you to do. Pick up your chair, fold it up, and take